on April 15th, 1912, at uh, approximately 2.20 a.m., the stern of the White Star liner, the Titanic, slowly swung upward toward the stars. Her lights went out, and then they flashed on again, only to go out for good. Only a kerosene lantern flickered in the high uh, aftermast. Her stern reached higher and higher, and a steady roar thundered across the water as every movable object aboard the, the ship broke loose. There's never been a cargo quite like it. 15,000 bottles of ale and stout, huge anchor chains, each link of the chain weighing 175 pounds, 30 cases of golf clubs, 30,000 eggs, potted palm trees, five grand pianos, a case of china for Tiffany's, a case of gloves for Marshall Fields, and most valuable of all, 1,500 passengers that would not be able to get off of the great ship. All of these objects and people tumbled together in a writhing heap as the bow eased deeper and deeper and the stern rose higher and higher. The Titanic now absolutely vertical with her three massive propellers glistening in the darkness. For nearly two minutes, she stood poised until she finally began to sink, slowly sliding under the water until the sea closed over her with an audible gulp. The wreck was massive and would travel the world, the news of this shipwreck. Any kind of wreck is a, a terrifying experience, whether it's a, a train derailment or an automobile collision or an airplane crash. But I would have to imagine that a shipwreck would be among the worst, if you think about it. The, the, the prolonged agony that the passengers and crew have to endure, the icy cold water often that surrounds you as you have time to contemplate your fate and your approaching death. Our text this morning is the tale of another famous shipwreck in history, that of the Apostle Paul on his way to Rome. This is also one of the best told, most detailed, and accounted uh, shipwrecks in ancient history. It's certainly the most profitable shipwreck account for modern readers because it has found its way in Holy Scripture. God has inspired Luke to write and include this account in the book of Acts, and so it's profitable for us. Before we jump in, though, I want to steer us away from a couple errors. See what I did there? Steer. Sorry, dad jokes. It's Christmas time. It's not over yet. We can still have silly dad jokes. Error one, though, I want, to, I want to steer us away from a couple errors that we can get into with a passage like this. The first is to assert that this story really didn't happen. There are many scholars that will teach that Paul, he wasn't really in an occasion like this, but Luke, the writer of Acts, uh, essentially took a pre-existing storm narrative and, and inserted Paul into it for propaganda reasons or for whatever the case may be. And this view should be rejected outright. The second problem or second error that we can get into, and this is much more a temptation for us, is to take a story like this and turn it into an allegory, which every person and thing in the story becomes a symbol for something else representing some hidden meaning. For example, some Bible teachers have tried to take this story and, and say, well, hey, there are four anchors mentioned in the text. So these anchors stand for different things. The, the, the anchor of trusting reason fails. The anchor of trusting religion fails. The anchor of trusting self fails. The anchor of trusting luck 
fails. And so what you really need to do is, is to anchor yourself in God, which is true. I wouldn't argue that we, that we don't need to anchor ourselves into God and his word, but that's not the point of the text. The text is not suggesting to us that there's some hidden meaning in the fact that four anchors are mentioned and that we need to just sort of mine deep enough and we can imagine some spiritual significance here. In the text, anchors are anchors. They're there for nautical purposes. Ships are ships. They're there to carry cargo and people. And here's the reason that we should stay away from a simply allegorical interpretation like this. Yes, the text, we're going to cover a chapter and a half this morning, and the text has a ton of sailing details, places we've never heard of, um, um, occasions on the sea that, that, that are described with great detail, but we don't have to play theological musical chairs to sort of work out some benefit in the text. Like, we need to do that, conjure up some spiritual significance. We can study the narrative. We can see God at work. We can find incredible encouragement from the things that Paul says in the text, even when they're fewer and farther between. And so let's jump into the text. If you remember from the past few weeks, Paul has appealed uh, to Caesar in Rome to decide his, his, uh, his, the, 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 the result of the charges that have been brought against him in Jerusalem. If you remember, the religious leaders there accuse him, and, and he appeals to the emperor. And so even though Agrippa, King Agrippa last week said, I would have let you go. I don't find any reason that you should be in prison or certainly not killed for these charges. I'd let you go, but you've appealed to Caesar. And so to Caesar, you must go. It, it's, it's, it's the emperor that's going to decide his fate. And so Paul is on his way. And if you jump in with me in the text, we'll, uh, we'll walk through this passage together. In chapter 27, I'll do some summary because, again, there's a lot of text before us this morning. And so stay with me. We'll try to summarize the narrative as best as possible. Verse 1, you see Paul is in the custody of a Roman centurion named Julius. He's placed on a ship that's uh, headed to Italy. Now, being a Roman citizen, Paul had some benefits that, even as a prisoner, that the other prisoners would not have, have been allowed. In this case, he was able to take companions. Dr. Luke, the writer of Acts, is one of those companions. You know this because he's referring to the, the group as we. He uses the, 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 that way of describing the missionary team, Paul, and, and then the other is Aristarchus, and they're with him. That They're journeying together to Rome, verse 2. And things are going really well. Verse 3, they put in uh, at Sidon, and the centurion Julius is kind enough to allow Paul to leave the ship and go be cared for by his friends there. Things are going pretty well in verse 3, and then they slowly begin to fall apart. Leaving Sidon, they sail up to Cyprus rather than Italy because of the winds, not, not cooperating, not allowing them to, to head to Italy like they were planning and then finally they land in Asia Minor, and the centurion transfers Paul, the other prisoners, and all of the cargo onto an Egyptian grain ship. You see that in verse 6, that Alexandrian or Egyptian grain ship. Now, this had its drawbacks. This, this Egyptian craft that they were on was large, and it was sturdy, and it could haul a lot of things, but it had its disadvantages in the open seas. This, this ship had one massive sail that made it so that it, it, couldn't, uh, it couldn't sail against the wind. It couldn't manipulate the winds to go where it wanted to go. It was sort of at the mercy of the, of the wind. And you see that difficulty in verses 7 and 8. And the text says, With much difficulty they reached Fair Havens, a, a small southern port in Crete. And then read verses 9 and 10 with me. You see a warning that Paul issues while they were, uh, while they were in Fair Haven. It says this in verse 9. 
Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because, of, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be, um, will, will be with injury and, and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. You see there the fast that Paul's referring to is Passover. And because Passover is over, we know that it's at least mid-October. Everyone at this time and living in this area would have known that it's really dangerous to sail at that time of the year. And so captains would go and winterize their boats. They would winter the season after mid-October and their cargoes in a harbor. And they would wait for these storms to pass and then they would sail again in a few months. However, Fairhavens, where they're located right now, is, is a rather boring little town. From history, we know it's not the type of place you would want to be stuck with no entertainment, no good restaurants, no music scene to pass the time as you wait for the stormy season to end. And so a nice south wind begins to blow and the captain decides, hey, let's take a chance and sail for a more uh, desirable port about 40 miles away in verse 11 and 12. Well, they set sail and it seems that everything that could go wrong did go wrong. They didn't heed the advice and wisdom of Paul. If you'll read with me, verse 14. It says, But soon a tempestuous wind called a northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Calda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. Verse 17, after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and they were, also, and they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither the sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Now, I don't know if you've ever been. I've never experienced this. But from what I'm told, if you've ever been made ill by a storm while on the water, then you can relate to the, the misery of this moment. I'll never forget being on board a cruise liner in the Caribbean Sea, enjoying a, a, a nice uh, five-course dinner with my bride for our anniversary and then all of a sudden being struck by the sounds of people frantically running to the bathroom because they couldn't contain their seasickness. It's not the way you want to enjoy a, a luxury meal. Here, these 276 crewmen and passengers faced incredible dangers that only continued to pro uh, progress, uh, progress through the evening. They, they, they passed ropes and chains underneath the hull of the boat. You see where it says they undergirded it. meant they, they passed these ropes and chains under the hull and winched them tightly so that they could literally hold the ship together as it was being slammed by crashing waves. Next, they threw all of the cargo and tossed all of their possessions overboard to lighten the load. And day after day, for 14 days, we'll see later in the text, with no light by day, no stars by night, they wallowed in the deep of the sea until they finally gave up all hope of being saved. They were, they were dead. In their minds, it was done. I want to hit pause here for a second and remind you of what we've already seen in the book of Acts. Two years before this, Christ appeared to Paul in the, the cell of a Caesarean prison. And Paul 
is, is there in chains. He's locked up in the barracks in Caesarea. And Jesus goes to him and appears to him and, and, he, and he makes him a promise. He says, Paul, you will testify of me, the Savior, in Rome. That's an unconditional promise. Paul would go to Rome, no doubt about it, and he would testify there of the Savior. No doubt about it. However, God did not promise Paul that he would go to Rome smoothly. The reality for you and I, church family, is that we can trust the promises of God. We can trust God's word that he'll never leave us, that he'll never forsake us. These promises that God has made us. But as we serve Christ, there will be storms, there will be hardships, there will be high seas and breakdowns. But the other promises of God are also true. There will be peace. There will be assurance. There will be fruitfulness. There will be the sustaining presence of Christ. Now you could just read these next few verses and completely miss the, the weight of them if you just read through them casually like you would the newspaper or something, right? Keep, keep reading with me. You'll see what I mean. It says, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me, and you should not have set sail for Crete. But, but if you were to read the text that way, you're forgetting what's going on. Remember, they've just went chains underneath the boat to keep the thing from flying apart because of the pressure of the crashing waves. They've not eaten in days. They've not seen daylight in days. And so when you read these next two verses, you should really picture something like the movie The Perfect Storm or Robert Redford's All is Lost, right? Paul shouting over the spray of the howling storm and making these claims as he's getting pelted by the, the enormous waves, gargling salt water between breaths. Men, you should have listened to me and never set sail for Crete. I told you this was going to happen yet. Verse 22, yet I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Here's the thing. From these words, it would seem Paul is wigging out. I told you not to do this. I told you you should have listened to my advice. You should have never done this. He's yelling in the fury of the storm. But what we don't see is Paul's soul. Because <laughs> in the midst of this, in the midst of this storm, in the midst of this statement that he's making to all of these passengers and even the captain himself, Paul's soul is as calm as a rippleless pond. Why? Because he had courage in the Lord. And for us, as believers in Jesus Christ, every one of us, not just Paul, every one of us that have placed our faith in Christ can have overwhelming, supernatural courage in the midst of storms. We, we can. That is given us by the Spirit of God. And that's why I want to spend the rest of our time this morning. As we walk through the rest of this text, the rest of this chapter in the first part of 28, I want us to look at the text and ask the Lord to teach us, Lord, how is it that we're to have this sort of courage in the midst of whatever life would have for us. Whatever the Lord would lead us by his sovereign hand and providence, whatever he would lead us through, how in the midst of that do we have spirit-given courage? I think the text shows us that. The first one is this. I'll give you six. First one is this. We have courage because of God's presence. Look at verse 23. 23 is key for us in this whole narrative of Paul's uh, shipwreck as he's headed to Rome. Look at verse 23. Paul's in the midst of this speech. He's still talking to these sailors and, and the captain. This very night, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Now, on the deck of a literal sinking ship, in the middle of a literal raging storm, Paul had courage because he knew of God's ongoing presence with him. This isn't the first time that he's spoken to or, or demonstrated the presence of Christ. 
If you think back in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 18, Christ came to Paul in a vision and said, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. In Caesarea, we've already referred to this one, uh, but Christ literally shows up in, to, in Paul's cell in the barracks of a, of a Caesarean uh, cell, and he tells him, you're going to go and you're going to testify in Rome, and I'll be with you, Paul. I'm going to be with you. Later, when he gets to Rome, we know of this because of 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4 tells us that even when he gets to Rome, that Christ again stood with Paul. His presence was there. So the question for us, church family, how do we become so aware of God's presence with us that we're given this sort of supernatural courage, confidence to face whatever may come our way? Well, it's rarely through an audible voice, but rather through the still, gentle assurance of the Holy Spirit and through God's Word. It's something that's produced in us when we least expect it. You think about even testimonies from folks in this room. It's that cancer diagnosis when, when the believer in Christ can say, I'm not, I'm not sure why, but for some reason I, I just have a peace. It's that phone call in the middle of the night when someone that we love has passed away. And, and for some reason, we can't even fathom it. We can't even put it into words, but we're okay. There's a calmness in our heart that, that we can't even describe in the midst of, of tragedy and darkness like that. I've seen it in many of your lives as we've walked through things together as a church family, as I've walked through things with you as your pastor. I've looked at your life and went, how in the world are you holding it together? You're like, I'm at peace. This is it. The supernatural courage, courage that rises up in you because of the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, because you know of Christ's presence with you. Second is this. The second reason we can have courage, and it's still in verse 23. We have courage because of God's ownership of us. Look at verse 23. Continue with me. For this night stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong. Paul saw himself as God's property. So the question for us as we apply a text like this, in what ways do we see ourselves as belonging to God? Well, I think the scriptures give us several. I'll point out a few of them just real quickly. We see ourselves as belonging to God like a bride belongs to a bridegroom. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 16 says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. The Bible often uses the intimacy of a husband and a wife to illustrate the union that we have with Christ. Paul, who's in the midst of this storm right now, writes Ephesians 5, and he concludes the description of the marriage relationship. He's talking about a, a husband and a wife and the relationship that, that, that is there in the marriage relationship. And he says this, this mystery is profound. Talking about marriage. This is why marriage is so important. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Why don't we hold up marriage as being something sacred and important? Because Paul says, this is the way that Christ loves us and that we relate to Christ. He's ours and we are his. We belong to Christ and are loved by Christ like a husband loves his bride. But more than that, he's the perfect groom. He's sinless. He's perfectly righteous. He's that kind of a husband and we belong to him. But, but secondly, the, the scriptures would teach us that we belong to him like a child belongs to his father. I once read the story of a, of a gentleman that was working upstairs in his home office. He could hear the, the wife downstairs say, hey, uh, daughters, two, two daughters, go and, and tell your father that, that breakfast is ready. 
So the oldest gets a head start and jumps up the steps and the younger behind her and uh, the younger being much smaller, much younger, gets to the top of the stairs and she's huffing and puffing. The older sister has been there for a, a minute or two now and she rounds the corner and the big sister says, I've already told daddy about breakfast. And as she's clinging on to her daddy's leg, she says, and I have all of daddy. And the little one took it kind of hard, and a, a tear began to roll down her cheek. And her father picked her up and sat her on his knee. And the younger sister, with maybe a mischievous grin, looks at the older sister and says, You might have all of daddy, but daddy has all of me. And that's the relationship you have with your father. You belong to him like a child belongs to a father. He has adopted you and brought you into his family eternally. If you are born again, he's your father. Do you cherish the fact that you are loved by your father and you are your father's possession? Third way we belong to God, I think we see this in scripture, is that we belong to God because he has bought us. Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19, 19 and 20, he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Here's the thing. In Paul tracing through God's possession of us, at least in 1 Corinthians 6 here, he doesn't ground it in the fact that God is creator. So God has created everything, therefore you are his possession. Though that is true as well. What he does is in 1 Corinthians 6, he sees God's ownership of us as a result of the one transcendent act of divine love. Namely that Jesus Christ died on the cross and by his own blood he purchased you, therefore you are God's. He has bought us, church family. You belong to God because he has purchased you by the blood of his own son. Do you delight in God's ownership of you? We see even in the midst of this storm and in the midst of this shipwreck, God has given Paul supernatural courage. And Paul says himself, verse 23, the God to whom I belong. That gave Paul incredible courage in the midst of this storm. The third one. As we continue walking through, asking the Lord, teach us about this supernatural courage. Number three, we have courage because we know our lives are to be worship unto God. This is again from verse 23. The God to whom I belong, Paul says, and whom I worship. Paul had courage here because his faith was in the one to whom he was living for and serving. He was on business for God. And he knew, he had a confidence that nothing is going to harm him unless God allows it. His life is to be laid down on the altar and given to Christ as worship. A little bit of a teaser, maybe for our next sermon series coming up after the first of the year. We'll, uh, we'll study through another book of the Bible. And in that one, we'll find another storm on the same sea, I might mention, and yet... Jonah had no such courage because he missed this great truth. And in contrast to Paul here in Acts, Jonah was not serving God. He was actually running from God. And in contrast to Paul's witness here to these Gentile shipmates, Jonah was running from God and it almost cost his Gentile shipmates their lives. Those who are Christ's. 
who are consciously serving him by the power of the Spirit, they can experience this sort of sustaining, life-changing assurance, confidence, and courage because we know in this moment, my life is being laid down to him anyways. It's being offered to him as a sacrifice of worship. My life, my time, my breath, my efforts, my energy, all of that is being given to Christ as worship. He can do with it what he wants. That gives us supernatural courage. Number four, we have courage because we trust in God. Look at what Paul tells the others on that battered ship. If you continue reading with me in verse 24, the angel said, as, as the angel to whom, to whom he belonged and to whom he worshipped, uh, the, the God of that angel said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. So we must run aground on some island. There was no question for Paul. We're going to run aground on some island because I believe that as God has said, we're going to survive this. I'm going to testify in Rome. It's going to happen just like God said. He was confident. And the confidence that he had was based upon his, his trust in God, that God was trustworthy. And when God says something, it's going to be carried out and completed. He believed God. And if our hearts, we have this sort of confidence in the word of God, if we see our lives as worship unto God, if we experience the presence of God and are fueled in our courage by that, then we can, we can face whatever circumstances come our way and worship God even in the midst of those storms because we're trusting in God's unfailing word. It's not contingent upon our, our circumstances, but upon the God who's, who's, who's in charge of those circumstances. And here's the thing, though. Just because we have this sort of spirit-given courage and just because we trust the promises of God and just because we stand, even as Paul is doing here in verses 23 and 24, and speaking to others amidst the storm, that doesn't mean that everything's going to just subside and be okay. Go back to a calm and we'll float this thing out. In fact, in our text this morning, things continue to get worse before they get better. Verses 27 through 36, we won't read all of those, but we see the conditions continue to deteriorate. If you just look at those verses with me, you see that darkness continues. You see that they, they took measurements of the depths of the sea and they found that their shore, even in the midst of darkness still, it hadn't, it hadn't been daylight or even stars for days, but in the midst of that, they're able to take depths of the sea and, and measure where they're at and they notice that they're getting closer to the shore, which may not mean anything for, for you. It didn't for me. I was like, well, why is that a big deal? Seems like that might be even a good thing, right? Well, if you were sailing in that day, you would know, especially in this area, that that meant rocky shores, cliffs and crags that could rip their boat apart and crush them as these waves pushed them into these shores that were incredibly dangerous. So in one final effort, the, the sailors cast off these four anchors from the stern and they held. And the men desperately prayed, the text says, for daylight. Just let it get daylight. Some of the sailors tried to escape in the lifeboat uh, that was aboard this ship. They were lying, saying, that, hey, we're going to go out and put some, put some more anchors down to help out the boat. Paul warns them that unless all the men remained on the ship and helped to navigate, then all would be lost. So Paul encouraged them to eat, and they did, and they were encouraged. Then verses 37 through 44 record their, records their salvation by shipwreck. Yes, that, that sounds strange. But that's exactly how it happened. Their salvation here comes as a result of the ship being wrecked. Look at verse 37. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. 
And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on it, which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and they left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim uh, to jump up overboard and first and make way for the land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to the land. We read a text like this, and we might be tempted to wonder why why the storms in the first place. Why this shipwreck in the first place? I mean, in Paul's case, a literal storm is is crashing, and, 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 and God could have spared him this. God is in control of the wind and the waves. God is sovereign over his creation. He could have spared him this. And in our case, when we make application of this, why in the world? We, we may have emotional or mental or physical storms going on that we could look at Paul's case here and go, I wish that mine was just a, a literal tidal wave because I think I could bear that more than I'm bearing what I'm, I'm dealing with now. I feel like it's far worse what is going on in my heart or in my life or in my family Couldn't God spare me this? And we all know that God could. He's not surprised or caught off guard by what comes our way. He loves us. He'll he'll give us, he'll grant us sufficient grace to endure and to remain faithful to him no matter what circumstances come into our life. And so the purpose, even though it's not not known to us, we have to trust that is is in the Lord's hands. And we know that it was with Paul's, and we see that next. When they finally hit land, The Lord continues to give ample reason for Paul to have confidence and courage in the Lord's will. It's the fifth one. We have courage because of unexpected blessings. Imagine the survivors here breathing a massive sigh of relief when they finally land and their feet hit the shore in Malta in verse verse 1 of chapter 28. It says, Upon arriving, they received some warm, unexpected hospitality from some local or native folks there in verse 2. The language, uh, that word there, native, means that these people were not Greek-speaking. They preferred uh, their, their regional dialects. These were rustic folks. They were either uneducated and knew no other language, or maybe they knew it but preferred their, their tribal languages. But these Maltese people were not barbaric or hostile. They displayed extraordinary kindness, the text says. They, they kindled a fire and welcomed everyone around. And you can imagine how this fire must have felt after being in an open boat, drenched in salt water for days in, in a storm-tossed sea. This was probably an incredible blessing to these folks. Well, verse 3, the adventure's not over. Paul, being the servant leader that he is, a prisoner, yet still serving the people he's with, begins gathering wood for a fire. And in his search for sticks, he found more than good firewood. He found a snake. And the snake, not wanting to be thrown thrown into the fire, comes out of the wood and latches onto Paul's hands. The natives conclude, hey, this guy must be a murderer, right? He survived a shipwreck only to die from a snake bite a few hours later. So in their mind, this is divine justice. The gods are smiting him. This murderer is running and, and he can't outrun the gods. Well, they would encounter the power of the divine, the true and living God, but not in the way that they're expecting here. You see, Paul didn't die. 
He didn't experience the swelling and the fevers and the symptoms that this snake bite should have had with it. He didn't experience death, which is what they, they expected to happen. And so the pendulum swings the other way. And these natives assume, well, he's not a murderer. He survived, so he must be God. <laughs> Wrong again. Paul is not God, but the God who rules the heavens and the earth, the God who is sovereign over creation was with Paul. And these islanders are receiving the grace of God in a visible display of God's power through Paul's immunity to this snake bite, to this venom, right? We've noted as we've studied through the book of Acts that oftentimes God uses circumstances, signs and miracles and wonders to get the attention of people that have never heard the gospel so that the message of saving grace in Jesus Christ can be presented to them. And so this snake bite is an act of God's kindness. This, this snake bite is an act of God's grace to these superstitious islanders. Paul gets the incredible opportunity to spend three months with these folks making the gospel known to them, sharing Jesus with them. It's an unexpected blessing that continues to bolster Paul's courage and propel the gospel to go forth. Well, the blessings don't stop there. The unexpected blessings continue. In verse 7, we're introduced to another gentleman there in the text. Uh, The leading man of the island is a guy named Publius. And he hosted Paul and these survivors for three days. It's another example to us of a pagan, a lost person, showing kindness and warmness to a believer and the believer receiving it. Paul didn't act like the Pharisees and try to distance himself from those folks because they don't believe like he believes. He acted like Jesus and he became a friend of these sinners. Verse 8, Publius' father, we learn, has a sickness. He has fever, dysentery. This sort of fever could have lasted months or even years. And so Paul goes, seemingly without even invitation, and he visits this sick man. He prays for him, showing everyone there, everyone that would have witnessed this, that the power for healing comes from God, not Paul. He lays his hands on him and he heals him. And so Paul, still being unjustly held as a a prisoner, proves to be a blessing yet again to another family of people. News of this travels, verse 9. People from all over the island flock to Paul and receive cures for their various sicknesses and diseases. They displayed gratitude not only with words but in deeds. Verse 10, they offered provisions for the crew for the rest of their voyage. And what a testimony. What an incredible display of God's power. You can imagine, right, the sailors that that have been with Paul, these 276 men that have watched Paul and they've seen him in chains. They know he's on this boat because he's going to be tried before the emperor and they're witnessing all of this. People being healed. Snake bites that don't kill. You can imagine Julius, this centurion that's literally guarding Paul. It's his job to take Paul back to the emperor and he sees all of this happening through Paul as Paul proclaims the gospel. What a witness. What a testimony. And this whole time, Paul is confident. Paul is being emboldened. He's he's courageous. He's trusting in God because of the power of the Holy Spirit, which leads to our final section in the text this morning, our sixth observation. We can have courage as we fellowship with the people of God. I don't know how many of you have taken a road trip with a toddler lately. Um, But if you have, then you will know these four little words that have become the bane of my existence. Are we there yet? If you've taken a road trip with a toddler, I'm sure you've heard them as well. I bet if I've heard them once, I've heard those words 10,000 times in the last year. And at this part in Paul's journey, in this part in in chapter 28, we might even start asking that question, right? As we're reading through this text and all these details, are we there yet? And the answer is almost. 
The crew boarded yet again another Egyptian ship and sailed for the the 210-mile journey, verse 11. They stopped at Syracuse for three days. They went on to Regium um, at the toe of the, 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 the Italian mainland. And then they went on to the port in Neapolis. It's about 130 miles south of Rome. Paul was invited to stay with Christian brothers and sisters there for seven days. Possibly because Julius is thinking, hey, the rest of this trip is on foot. And uh, let's rest up a few days before we make this journey on foot. So after resting seven days, the men had about a five-day walk to Rome. Now, think about all that's coming together in this text, in this moment. You have Paul getting very close to Rome. The church in Rome gets wind that Paul is arriving. You see that in verse 15, that he's, that he's arrived in the mainland, verse 15. And his magnum opus, the book of Romans that is in your Bible, has reached these folks three years earlier. So they've read the, the gospel. They've heard from the apostle Paul. They've heard tale of, of the miracles and signs and wonders that it's accompanied the gospel as it spread throughout the world at that time. And now Paul is here. He's here to encourage these believers face to face. Something he's desired to do for years now. Something that's been in his heart to do since the beginning of his ministry. Something that Jesus told him would come to pass. Verse 15. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Here's a guy who's very possibly about to meet his death when he stands before the emperor and the emperor decides his fate. Here's a man who has been through beatings and lashings and shipwrecks and snake bites and and days on the ocean, suffering without food, not seeing the light of day. And and, and he gets to Rome after all of this buildup, after all of this excitement, and he's, he's, he's meeting these brothers and sisters in Christ. And we can observe the sweetness of Christian fellowship and what it produces. Verse 15, courage. He took courage. And it's the sight of these spiritual brothers and sisters. It's the sight of these other believers in Christ that Paul offers up thankful prayer and courage. It had been almost two and a half years since Jesus spoke to him in that Caesarean cell and told him, you're going to get to, you're going to, get to Rome, Paul. And he's finally here. God keeps his word. Paul can literally see the promises of God being fulfilled. And then he sees these brothers and sisters in Christ that he's never met before. They've only received his writings. And he's reminded of what Jesus says in Acts 1.8, that the gospel would go to the uttermost parts of the world. And Rome is that. It's reached Rome. And now there are brothers and sisters in Christ that have professed faith in the Messiah. And he sees them. And you can imagine the joy and courage that this produces in Paul's heart. Brothers and sisters that I've never met that believe the same truth that I believe. What a joy this produces in him, and what it should do in us is the same. As we look around this room, we see brothers and sisters in Christ that have staked everything, their eternity, on the claims of Christ, on his death and resurrection. Back in chapter 27, verse 23, Paul told the distressed captain that that the God to whom he belonged and the God that he worshipped and served had, a, had a assured him of safe arrival in Rome. As Paul's saying this, he identifies for us what it means to be Christian. Christians know they belong to God through Jesus' death and resurrection. Christians know that we worship and serve God through Jesus Christ by the help of the Spirit. We don't serve the idols of, of, of money or pleasure or success or entertainment or comfort. 
So if you aren't serving God in this way, this morning, friend, it's time for you to ask, do I really belong to God through Christ? Have I been born again? And if you can't answer that question with certainty, then embrace Him today. He won't turn you away. The offer is here for you as it was for Paul, as it was for these believers in Rome. His Son, the Son of God, has died in your place and offers you forgiveness of sins and life eternal if you will repent and trust in Him. And then for those of us who do belong to Jesus, take courage today. As we think back through this journey that Paul's taken and this shipwreck that's occurred, take courage because you know of God's presence. You feel His presence in your life. Take courage because you know God owns you. Like a husband and a wife, like a father and a son, like like a, a purchase that's been made, He's purchased you by His Son's own blood. He owns you. Take courage because our lives are meant to be worship unto Him. And if that's the case, then He owns them anyways. Take courage because He's trustworthy. And we can see His promises being fulfilled left and right every day around us. Take courage is when we take courage when we see unexpected blessings. You, you may tomorrow have something happen in your life where you say, I didn't see that coming. Had no idea that that was going to happen. Had no idea that God was going to use me in that way. Had no idea that He was going to be faithful to meet that need in that kind of way. Let it produce courage in you that the Holy Spirit is fighting for you. And then take courage as you look around this room and see the people of God. A community of believers that have trusted in Christ's death. That are standing with King Jesus just like you are. Let's walk in courage into this new year, church. Another way that we have this sort of supernatural courage. Another way that the Holy Spirit produces this in us. And another thing that we've been given for this purpose is the table. Communion. The ordinance that the Lord has given us to remind us of, of, the, of the work that He's done on our behalf, of His broken body and His shed blood, that He's accomplished salvation for us. This is God's way to tap us on the shoulder and remind us when we get so busy in this life and so consumed with other things, to remind us of the victory that He has over sin and death. That we would gather around this table and remember Christ's broken body and shed blood and see a room full of other people that are also celebrating that truth And that would embolden our hearts. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, don't miss this, drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Do you know that's what you're doing this morning? As we gather around this table and celebrate communion together, you, each and every one of us that partakes in this this supper, is proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And so what you're doing is you're looking at your brother and sister in this room and saying, this was Christ's body and blood. He was broken for you. It was poured out for you, for your salvation. Take heart, brother. Take courage, sister. He's going to see you through until he comes. What an incredible reminder that the communion is for us. As Michael comes, he's going to lead us just instrumentally in a time of reflection, a time for us to prepare our hearts before the Lord, a time for us to repent of sin. It reminds you of a few things. Take this time to pray. 
Take this time to, 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 to respond to the text we've heard, to ask the Lord to give you this sort of supernatural courage that only can be possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. Repent of sin that he may convict you of in this moment. If you have a brother or sister with a, with a fault in this room that you, that you have some disagreement or you've gotten some argument over or there seems to be hard feelings or bitterness, go to that person and ask forgiveness. It'd be better for you to go and be made right with a brother and sister than to take this table unworthily with sin in your heart, angst towards someone in this room or outside of this room. And then when you're right before the Lord, when you've had time to pray and reflect upon the word of God and prepare your heart before this table, you come. We'll do two aisles down the, two lines down the center aisle. You come and receive the, the bread and the cup and then go back to your seats and then we'll take it together. Hold it there in your seat until we're all able to receive the elements and then I'll lead us to take it as a body, as a church family together. I want to pray for us. I want to remind us, though, even before I pray. Um, kids, we want this time to be for you, too. We want you to see mom and dad or maybe grandma or grandpa take the bread and the cup and take it and eat it and to see Christ's broken body and shed blood. But if you've not been born again, if you've never repented of your sins and been baptized, then we're going to ask you kids to sit this one out. Talk to mom and dad about it when you get home. Ask them what that means. Have gospel conversations about what this table represents. But parents, let's not let kids take this. And that, that goes for adults too. If you've never been born again, we just ask you, we're not trying to be rude or unhospitable. But if you've never been born again, then there's nothing in your heart to celebrate. You've never experienced the joy of salvation. You've never experienced forgiveness of sins. And so sit this one out. We pray that you'd be born again, that you would repent of your sins, even today, and trust Christ for salvation. That next time when we do this, you'll be a part of this body, a part of this faith family, celebrating Christ's victory over death. I'm going to pray for us, and let's respond.